It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Today on the program, homelessness. It's estimated that 30,000 people across Canada struggle to find shelter each night, and 66% of the Winnipeg homeless population is Indigenous, and that among youth, it rises to 74%. Now, these numbers highlight the importance of incorporating Indigenous and local ways of knowing into any proposed solution. Dr. Gino DeStasio is the director of the Institute of Urban Studies and vice president of research and innovation at the University of Winnipeg. Dr. DeStasio joined the University of Winnipeg in 1999, and over the past 15 years, he has served as director of Institute of Urban Studies, a faculty member of the Department of Geography, and most recently was promoted to vice president of research and innovation. And for over a decade, Gino has worked extensively in Winnipeg's inner city, as well as exploring broader Canadian and global urban issues. And during the period, he has been actively engaged in well over 150 projects, publications, and community initiatives. Presently, he is coordinating a study of homelessness and mental health in Canadian cities. And this work is part of a $110 million project funded by the Mental Health Commission of Canada and is the largest such project ever undertaken globally. Dr. Gino DeStasio, welcome to Moment of Truth. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Um, it's quite an undertaking, and you've certainly invested quite a bit of time in uh, in becoming very familiar with this topic. Well, absolutely. You know, we began our work 10 years ago in five Canadian cities, Moncton, Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver, to really radically change the way Canada looked at and addressed homelessness in our country. And again, owing to the fact that on any given night, we've got more than 30,000 people without shelter, we knew that we needed to change the paradigm of how we provided services and supports here in, uh, here in Canada. Mm. Now, the project you're referring to, uh, this 10-year journey that began with the landmark at-home Chez project, uh, is the $110 million fundamentally that changed the homelessness ways to both understand and address Canada and increasingly globally. Now, um, when you first started this, first of all, what drew your attention to it? Why were you interested in getting involved? Well, what we knew in Canada and in, in particular in Winnipeg is that the way in which we were addressing homelessness was really largely focused in on shelters and triaging symptoms instead of really getting at the root causes of why people were on the street. And in the case of the At Home Chez project, we took in an American model of housing first and we adapted it both for Canada and then more, uh, even more so for the city of Winnipeg, which has a very large Indigenous population. So we knew that work in Winnipeg had to not only be very distinct among the five cities, but also very rooted in the community with ownership by the three organizations that led the service delivery. That was Aboriginal Health and Wellness, the Mama Wichita Centre, and the Mount Carmel Clinic all with decades of experience working with Indigenous communities, families, and individuals to provide services and supports. So we were really at the, the front end of a, of a real tidal wave of change in, in how we addressed homelessness with a new set of supports and services that were beyond just giving people a shelter bed for the evening. So, yeah, so, so why do you think it took... Uh, such a long time or, or, or to get around to the idea of actually incorporating these organizations that were the front 
line of, of dealing with these people to, to sort of incorporate their ideas and their, their views to, to look at the solution? Well, so it was a two-pronged approach. First, the Mental Health Commission of Canada approached a number of cities to, un- to undertake what they called at the time a demonstration project using the Housing First framework. So that when Winnipeg was approached, it was really clear that there was no other way to do it without the leadership of the Indigenous community in Winnipeg to really put a local lens on addressing homelessness. And what our report that we just released talks about is that you can take a complex health intervention like Housing First and you can deliver it to a very high standard But that doesn't limit you from really focusing in on the root causes of homelessness in Winnipeg. And what we really wanted to do was put forward what we call the community strength framework. And that community strength framework really looked at some of the causes of some of the challenges in Winnipeg, like looking at trauma and how Indigenous persons have been affected through history, looking at the way in which we could collaborate as different community organizations, academic organizations, the Department of Psychiatry, and others to really set the approach that was grounded in some health principles and mesh that with a real strong community blanket to wrap everybody around and say, we can end homelessness in this one prairie city. We can take the tools and lessons that we've learned from New York City, where housing first began, transpose them into Winnipeg, and put a team and governance structure together that really reflected local practices and principles. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit more on this housing first that started in New York City? What, what was successful about that? What was attractive about it? Yeah, you know, we're going back to the early 1990s. As we know, New York has often been the center point for a lot of challenge in the urban context. So as the 80s and 90s uh, crept on, the number of individuals visibly present on the streets of New York was exploding. So here comes, uh, the the great part of the story is actually you have a a transplanted Greek-Canadian from Montreal who finds himself in New York City, (laughs) Samson Barris, Great story. He starts looking at the, the representation on the streets, and he's told as a, as a community psychologist, go work with homeless individuals who are struggling with mental illness and addiction. Get them off the streets. He comes up with this you know, revolutionary idea that says, I really think treatment would be more effective if we got people into housing first and then provided services and supports. The previous model was okay, we've got people that are struggling with a whole bunch of different things. Let's get them sober. Let's get them into shelters and transitional housing and hope that we can get them ready for housing. And Sam, I think, you know, to his credit said, no, I think the key part here is get people back into the communities, get people back into real housing that they have control over, and then let's work on a recovery plan that's individualized. So that led to a whole bunch of change in the way in which we provided services and supports to, the, to persons experiencing homelessness by putting housing at the forefront and then working on everything else. And from there, things just started to fall into place, and he created complex teams to deliver supports and services in a manner that we hadn't really uh, seen before. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, and, and that's great to see how that came about. So I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. 
Um, so what, what uh, as you started to roll this out and get the, the three uh, bodies that you referred to, in, at least in the Winnipeg area, uh, how did they uh, support this when it, when it was first introduced to them? Did they like the idea? Were they, were they skeptical? Well, absolutely, and, and, and rightly so. You know, we've got community organizations and groups within Winnipeg's Indigenous community that have been inundated with requests to participate in research and to do this and to do that. And here was, you know, again, who's now a friend, but here was an American coming into Winnipeg with the Mental Health Commission of Canada to tell Winnipeg how to address homelessness. And you've got some pretty savvy community organizations and teams that said, well, just hang on a second. Hang on a second. We've got decades of experience. We like what you're saying, but we need to make it our own. And we need to ensure that people that enter into the program, the at-home Chez Soir program, really begin to see themselves better reflected in all aspects of the services and supports that were being delivered. And that went all the way into the housing sector where locally we had an organization called Housing Plus that was run by the Mama Wichita Center that provided uh, apartment furnishings and, uh, and all the kinds of support to make the housing component of Housing First work better. So again, it was really about strengthening relationships, better understanding, working through the tensions, because again, hey, it was, it was a big thing to ask all organizations across the country, not only Winnipeg, to take part in something that was seen as being radically different. And I always say that, you know, it's intriguing to me that in, in 2009, when we started, there was probably maybe six or seven communities in Canada that were sort of delivering housing first. And now I think we're probably approaching 70 communities, and that is from east, west, north, and south. So we've really seen this idea of housing first move across all parts of our country. I, I imagine that trying to do something like this uh, had its challenges, of course, just in trying to sell the idea. And what I mean by that is you're, you're, you're trying to look at dealing with people that have addictions or, or that, are, that are homeless uh, and, and other issues, and yet you're saying, no, we gotta, we got to get them set up here with a, with a place to live first. And that, that, of course, opens up a whole bunch of other doors in terms of where's the money going to come from for that. Uh, I imagine that, that, that there was a lot to, uh, to go through to get this initially done. Absolutely. And again, while all the cities developed really excellent plans, what Winnipeg did that I think is really a, a, another indication of the community strengths model is we partnered with a lot of uh, social enterprises and social agencies in Winnipeg to provide us with all kinds of supports and services. So instead of going to a big box uh, store for furniture, we partnered with a, with a smaller organization in Winnipeg. Instead of going to a big moving firm, we employed an organization that had persons with lived experience and persons that were transitioning from all parts of their life into that company. We also worked with and helped launch a social enterprise called Manitoba Green Retrofit that provided all the supports for people living in apartments because one of the cool parts of Housing First was we assured landlords where possible we would support the renovation or repair process if one of the participants in the study at the time, you know, if there was some damage or if there was an apartment turnover. So we tried to cover all the bases. But again, in the Winnipeg approach, it was really 
build on the community strengths that we have, work with local organizations, indigenous leadership, social enterprises, along with the Department of Psychiatry, the, you know, the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority, all the key players were around the table, addressing tensions, wrestling with complex ideas, but at every single point, it was always about ensuring that as many people as, po- as we possibly could were transitioned from the street and into stable, long-term housing. Now, you mentioned housing, you mentioned uh, landlords, you've mentioned apartments. Uh, that's the other, the other thing that comes to mind is, is the neighbourhoods where these people would be, be housed. And um, were there challenges there? Be, you know, were there concerns from, from the neighbours and the people living in those neighbourhoods? Well, absolutely. Again, anytime you introduce something new, there's always going to be this question mark, right? So people are trying to ask us, well, you're putting people into our apartments. We, we understand they might have mental illness or addictions. Our response back and our response remains this, that in every single community in this country, there is struggle with both mental illness and addiction. And there's no difference in the, in the individuals who are experiencing homelessness who are being supported back into community living. So we had to take sort of a, a real harm reduction approach, but a, a community-minded approach to say, our real simple goal is to get people back into housing and to remove the barriers, the stigmas that may have prevented individuals from becoming housed in the past. And we cannot not say that racism in a place like Winnipeg didn't exist because mm-hmm. it did. Mm-hmm. But we worked as hard as possible with landlords, with property managers and caretakers to work on those and to address stigmas and to make everybody aware that recovery from addiction, recovery from being on the street takes time and that people may struggle, but that through at least the Housing First framework, in the At Home Chez Soi project, behind the scenes, there were teams that were there to help provide supports. Mm. You know, as you, as you work through this, you brought in these, these three uh, uh, organizations, at least in the, in the Winnipeg area, focusing on indigenous, the indigenous population. What, what were some of the things that, I mean, you brought in elders, I believe, as well, and, and uh, wanted to get feedback and input from, from people how to do this. Uh, what were some of the things that you saw and heard as you were doing that? Well, I think that was the key part, to the, at least to this project here, was to reground ourselves back in the community. So the research project, the piece that just came out that reflects back on the last decade, was again built up from the, the lessons and the teachings that our Council of Elders were so kind to share with us. And we remain indebted that so many people are committed in Winnipeg to being there to provide supports to both. You know, myself as an academic, it is often difficult, right, to connect back to community, to assure uh, community leaders that we're trying to do the right thing, that we're trying to bring this information forward to be helpful. We're not trying to share information that is just going on a shelf, We're trying to bring forward the lessons that were learned in Winnipeg through this wonderful community strengths model that we think have some implications for other cities. 
But what elders told us here and what community leaders told us here was, remember, the traditions and approaches in Winnipeg and Manitoba among the communities that were represented in this research don't represent the views across the country. And so what we say is that for each community that's thinking about housing first, that may have a, an Indigenous population or a new Canadian population, our, our comments are simple. Work with the local. Reflect the local in everything that you're doing to address homelessness and make sure that people see themselves reflected in the programming and in the governance structures or the delivery systems. If you're going to end homelessness in Canada... We have to use a different approach, and it cannot be a top-down approach where government somehow provides the programming. We know so often that it is those grassroots uh, surges of energy and support that end homelessness. Mm. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest today is Dr. Gino Distasio, and he is the director of the Institute of Urban Studies and vice president of research and innovation at the University of Winnipeg. Uh, Dr. Distasio, you mentioned success, and I'm wondering about what were the early successes that you saw as, as this was started to, to uh, be initiated? I think in a, in, in a place like Winnipeg, some of the early successes were really getting the attention of a range of community organizations and leaders to get behind the idea of ending homelessness for upwards of 300 people in Winnipeg and just over 1,000 people in the five Canadian cities that took part. And it's pretty amazing when I look back and I think of, uh, you know, September, October of 2009, where, you know, academics, community leaders, government and others were just getting out into the streets of our cities and approaching people and organizations and saying, hey, we're trying this new approach to ending homelessness. We'd like to talk to you about being in the study. And part of that study is going to be giving you an apartment that's fully furnished and providing you with a set of supports over the next couple of years to exit homelessness. And we all remember so vividly the first person in each of our communities that was housed and that empowering moment when that person was given a key to an apartment they might not have had in a very, very long time. And that's powerful. And as we reflect back on the last 10 years and knowing that through this one project that was very well funded with well over $100 million, not only did we change the lives of those that participated and received housing, we have contributed to significant change in how we think about homelessness, how we address it, and most importantly, how we end it by using real simple tools, building relationships with people and advancing a conversation that's all set around giving people opportunities. Mm. Now, you know, when you said that to me about the first people that were given their keys to their apartments and, and, and you know, I thought, yeah, wow, that must have been very, uh, very significant for those people, first of all. Uh, it must have also maybe uh, that responsibility uh, alone is something perhaps they hadn't had is to, you know, to be responsible for, for the property, for their apartment and to look at their lives differently 
uh, I, I can well imagine it, it would have uh, altered their perspective quite considerably. It did. And we always acknowledge, too, that for, for some, the first house or the first home or that first apartment didn't work. Mm. And that there were challenges with, you know, many people coming and going or just all kinds of things. But the importance of the Housing First framework was to never give up and to provide that opportunity to rehouse somebody and say, okay, it didn't work, but we're going to try again. We're not giving up. And so there was instances where we rehoused individuals several times. Mm. And there were lots of instances where the housing didn't work. But what we know is that the housing success rates in a housing-first approach are so much higher than any other thing that we were doing in this country that, you know, we wish it was 100%, but it wasn't. We know that no program is 100% successful, but for a lot of the communities, we were approaching 80% or higher in terms of people remaining housed over the long term. Now, when you say, you know, you're talking about housing and getting people off the streets, but you, you can't help but also think of those other challenges that, that some of these people bring uh, if, they're, if they have addictions uh, and other issues, mental illness, those kind of things. Uh, so it's not just one, one, one looking at one part of this, right? It's a, it's a, it's a package. Absolutely. And it's a real holistic harm reduction approach to providing individuals with, a, with access because there's no prerequisites in a housing first program. But what we try to do is provide access to a range of services and supports that work with that individual on recovery, whatever that means for them, but recognizing that even with addictions, there's lots of people that are very wealthy, very stably housed that struggle with uh, mental illness, that struggle with addiction. The challenge sometimes for, for the rest of us to understand is just because somebody's on the street and struggling with addiction, it doesn't mean that they don't deserve a home. And, and it doesn't mean that they don't deserve access to something. And I'm, I'm sure this won't come as any surprise to you, but I have heard of stories where there are some very successful people that are homeless, that have just had... Uh, the bottom knocked out of them, and uh, they find themselves on the street. Yes, and the, 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 the reminder to all of us is the, the, the importance, the absolute importance of intervening early, recognizing that we're not going to be able to have everybody in housing all the time because there are so many life challenges that prevent that. Right? And whether it's a sudden turn of events, whether it's the onset of something, addiction, whatever the cause, it doesn't mean that we, we don't still work with that person to try to find the path back home. And I think what Housing First did was it observed that in Canada, not only is there a significant number of individuals who are homeless, but there's about 15% of the population who really struggle with mental health and addiction that were really falling and falling fast in terms of being able to provide supports. Housing First goes after the harder to house. And it's in that group where we saw the greatest success. And that is the good part. At least we were able to show quite effectively that you can support some of the highest needs individuals and see long-term success in housing. 
I, to this day, see people that have been housed for nearly a decade who previous to the at-home Shea Swap project had experienced the revolving door in and out of housing, in and out of institutions, in and out of justice systems, who for almost 10 years through Housing First have remained in housing. And it's not everybody, but I'll tell you, it is a heck of a day when you run into somebody and there's a smile on their face and they are remaining in housing. They might not be as well off as everyone else. They may still be struggling with poverty or other challenges, but at the end of the day, they have that key to their apartment that gives them something they hadn't had before or for a very long time. And that speaks well, I think, of of greater society in, in many ways. I think it does. And again, I think what Canada is beginning to show, you know, we've got the reaching home strategy, a new federal investment into social housing and homelessness. We need to continue to address root causes and we need to continue to provide communities with the right sets of resources so they can respond. Because what we learned very quickly is if you take your foot off the federal, provincial or municipal pedal on social supports and affordable housing, it turns very quickly. Right now we're in a good period. We're by far, we're still far away from ending homelessness in Canada more meaningfully, but I think we've never been on such a trajectory forward that is, is optimistic. You, know, you mentioned root causes, and I'm sure the root causes for individuals varies widely. Uh, we've mentioned some of them, uh, mental illness, uh, addictions, those things, uh, bad luck in some cases, uh, but you know, displacement from their, their communities, uh, I'm just wondering, as you look back over the 10 years, and you, you, it obviously sounds like you've had success, but how, how does the organization look at its at success? Is it just simply getting people housed and, and in, in uh, permanent uh, uh, homes? Uh, or is it beyond that? Is it saying, you know, they're now able to, they're, they're having greater success with their personal lives in terms of dealing with their other issues as well? I think you're bang on. I think at the end of the day, success for each person was unique. For some, reunification with family, with community, with networks that they hadn't been engaged in for a very long time. We had individuals who rediscovered volunteering for organizations. We had individuals that were satisfied simply with having some stability in their daily routines of just having that home. And remember, too, as, as probably as, as crazy as it sounds, when you disrupt a routine that was really about survival every single day and you take that away, it takes some time to get reorganized in terms of doing other things with your day, right? The intent wasn't to say, we're going to take people off the streets of Canada and we're going to get them all working. We knew that that really didn't make sense. And that approach has been uh, one that has been used. And for some, it did work, right? For some people, we did see some employment reintegration. For others, it, it, it was really about their own individual path to recovery and their own individual path that led them to where they were and where they were trying to get to. So it was really about learning from each other. What are my experiences as somebody who's struggled with health, with housing, or with addiction? 
and what are our joint experiences going forward in working towards something that we can look forward to, stable housing, working to volunteer, working to get back into the uh, education or employment sectors, whatever it meant to somebody. Mm. So you've touched on a number of things there, as and I think I think of, of moving forward and looking looking to the future, and and I wonder about how things might have changed also over the ten year period. What what the organization learned from uh, from its beginnings and uh, you know up to this point and looking down the road. Yeah, I think if you look back over the last ten, maybe even fifteen years in in the response in Canada home, to homelessness generally it's night and day. And so what we've come through was a period where, and I think rightly so, if you go back to the early 2000s, Canada was still in the mode of developing shelter beds in a lot of cities and investing in shelters, thinking that part of the solution to homelessness was short-term shelters that would allow people to sort of catch their breath and then be propelled back into into society. We then began to integrate skills redevelopment, addressing addictions, to now the housing first approach, which really zeroed in on uh, mental health and other kinds of supports. So really over 10, 15 plus years, we've seen a tremendous evolution. But the key for me is that I firmly believe that the more opportunities, the more types of programs and services whether it's uh, uh, housing that has you know, strict rules on, on use to harm reduction, the more the better, because I think every person finds where they fit. Sometimes it just takes a little bit longer to figure out where my own path is going to lead me in terms of uh, housing or supports and services. You mentioned uh, earlier on uh, about this project, a $110 million project funded by Mental Health uh, Commission of Canada, how did 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 they come up with the idea to approach this uh, this housing first, or with, with this guy Sam that you mentioned earlier, or what, how did that how did that come about? And and if they weren't the first people to get involved, was that a, a hard sell? Well, it's interesting because it goes back to probably the um, the mid two thousands when. Then-Senator Michael Kirby released a Senate report on looking at Canada's mental health system called Out of the Shadows at Last. And in that report, Kirby and others called for a fundamental reorganization of the mental health systems in Canada. And in there, and subsequent to the establishment of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, the idea was housing first, as was observed in the United States and elsewhere, was extremely promising in terms of providing that, uh, that real jump for ending homelessness for persons with mental health and addictions issue. And so Sam Simbaris, again, was brought in from New York and a team with the late Paula Gehring from, uh, from the University of Toronto and others, and they said, let's do it. Let's try it. Let's be bold in Canada. And I know for some it's hard to say, wow, you've just put a hundred plus million dollars into the hands of academics and the commission to establish this program to end homelessness based on emerging evidence from the U.S. But 
there was a lot of real smart people around the table that said, we really, really think this can work if we tailor it to the Canadian context. And mm-hmm. that's what happened. Great. And it started, as you say, with five cities. It's now grown closer to 70 across the country. Absolutely. And we continue to see that growth, not only in Canada and into northern communities and into larger cities. The real important, well, in addition to that, is the global penetration of housing first into parts of Europe, Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, all over. There's not too many continents where a housing-first approach is not being investigated or actually used right now. And I really think that the Canadian version of housing-first, along with certainly the American component of the Pathways model, as it was called, have significantly altered the manner in which homelessness is addressed um, in in whatever context and whatever community now. It, it really is rewarding to have played just a small role in that. Mm. We're getting close to the end of our time. Just wondering if there's anything else we, we haven't mentioned that you feel is important to touch on. No, I think the, 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 the message that we need to keep referencing is the importance of just moving forward. We've got a good framework in Canada to provide financial support to communities. Communities have tremendous will, tremendous social capital to get things done. Let's just empower them even more to chip away at those 30,000 individuals who, again, have nowhere to go tonight. Let's get more keys into people's hands, get people into places with supports, and I think that our country will continue to be better for it. Mm. Dr. Gino DeStasio, I want to say thank you very much for joining us on the program today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, such a worthwhile project that you're involved with in, in helping people. Thank you. Been our pleasure. That is Dr. Gino DeStasio, Director of the Institute of Urban Studies and Vice President of Research and Innovation at the University of Winnipeg. We're going to take a pause, but don't go away. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth with uh, Caroline O'Neill in our Ottawa uh, Bureau talking about the countdown on the election. Right back here on Element FM. Okay, welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And speaking of Ottawa... It is with great pleasure that I welcome to our show one of our own. Caroline O'Neill is our morning news person at our sister station in Ottawa at 95.7 FM, and she is also our eyes and ears on Parliament Hill. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. It's a pleasure to welcome you back. It's always nice hearing from you. And, of course, uh, things are heating up. It's election time. It is election time, and it's only been a little over a week since the writ was issued, although some people may argue it's felt a lot longer than that with some of the things that have been happening as of late. Uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. It, it sure is. So, so why don't you, first of all, start by telling us, uh, you know, just give us a, a general overview of what you're seeing and hearing up there in, in the Ottawa area and from the Hill. Sure. Well, first of all, I think that, you know, the thing that's very hard to ignore is obviously the stories that came out about Justin Trudeau and the pictures of him in brown face and blackface. That is just something that really can't be ignored at this point. Mm. And he has always, you know, portrayed himself as this feminist, as this guy who's very aware of issues that matter to people. And he also has tons of different cabinet ministers of color and politicians of color who have given 
him their support in this election. So this is a very upsetting time, I think, for a lot of different people. So I think that this is going to be something that he is really going to have to try to right some of these wrongs. But this is a really tough situation. Yeah. So so how is this going to reflect? I mean, he, he you know, he's already dealing with a number of things, right? Exactly. Well, I mean, first of all, at some point he will be in a debate, right? And mm. last week it was kind of he's running away from SNC-Lavalin. Well, now he's running away from SNC-Lavalin and he's running away from another scandal, but this time about some racist imagery. So this is going to be something that I think he will be held to task, especially by Elizabeth May and by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. And we certainly saw that in the first election where he sat out. And Andrew Scheer really did face a lot of tough questioning from Elizabeth May and from Jagmeet Singh. And I think that will certainly be directed to Justin Trudeau when they all meet on the debate stage. But I also think that he's still in campaign mode, right? He has four weeks left of this. And I think that constituents will let them know or let him know how they're feeling when he meets with them. Yeah. So do we have the full story on this on this thing with him, though, with the brown face? What do we what do we know exactly? What what uh You know, what are the particulars? What we do know is that Time magazine published a picture of Trudeau wearing brown face in 2001. He had an emergency press conference where he did say that he was wearing brown paint on his face, his neck and his hands. And he said that this was a costume to be Aladdin for an Arabian Nights party. And while he was asked about this, somebody did bring up if there had been any other instances. And he said himself that he also donned blackface when he sang a song by Harry Belafonte. So those were the two instances that he addressed. And then Global News obtained a video that showed him wearing blackface in what appeared to be a different setting. This time he could be seen wearing a hoodie and wearing jeans. Mm. So that's where things are right now. Yeah, it's, uh, wow, It, it, it just doesn't seem to stop. Well, and this is the problem, right? We have four weeks left of this and... Typically, the way people might look at an election um, is that it's really going to be that week before when people kind of tune in, right? How are they feeling about leaders? Do they trust leaders? What issue matters to them? And he can do a lot of damage in the next four weeks, or he can see if there's some way to fix it. But mm-hmm. I think it's, it's going to be hard. I think regardless, he has a very hard road ahead of him now. So can we talk a little bit also about something else that, that happened? And that was the, with the People's Party of Canada that is now being recognized as as a legitimate uh, runner, which they weren't before. How do you think that's going to change the dynamic? I think it's going to change it a lot because Maxime Bernier is just such a hard person to figure out. I think a really great example of that was during the whole Elections Canada debacle about environmental groups. And when at first environmental groups were kind of told that any mention to climate change could be seen as partisan because of Mm. Maxime Bernier's views. He himself does not believe in climate change, he has said. And when this story broke, Maxime Bernier was out in full support of the environmental groups because he believed in their right to say what they believed in. So he's a really, really tough person to figure out. Mm. And I think he'll be very interesting on that stage. The other thing, too, is that he's going to be on that stage debating Andrew Scheer. And obviously, the two of them didn't part on great terms after the leadership race. So I think that he's going to come out in full force. And he's just such a hard guy to predict. And then there's the Green Party. Yeah, there's Elizabeth May. Elizabeth May, I think she is a great debater. 
And I think especially in the last debate that we saw, it was very apparent that there was one person who had been speaking about the environment and climate change for a very long time, and that this was a knowledgeable person. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, Elizabeth May can have her missteps too. She has really great moments where she shines like a debate. And then she has other moments where you kind of do question a little bit about what's going on with the leadership. A really interesting thing when I look at Elizabeth May is that I think that a Green Party should be populated by young people, right? Climate change is a very pressing issue for young people especially and for diverse populations. And we typically find that the Green Party doesn't really have that same support that we see with the Liberal Party or with the NDP. And that does make me wonder in a sense why there hasn't kind of been more support of a party that is so rooted in climate change. So she's she's an interesting person and I do think on the issues she can come across as strong. The other thing that would make her the person to watch is that she's very aware of her position. When she released her platform at the York Hotel last week, she said she knew that she would not be prime minister, but she did kind of mention that what she would want to do for a minority government and how she would kind of want to work to um, collaborate with other governments to make mm. her policy happen. So I think that if we're in a minority situation, Elizabeth May will be the person to watch. You know, it's it's interesting because she did come out swinging on the environment, of course, and on climate, the climate crisis. Um, but you just you just alluded to something, and that is by the very nature of the name of the Green Party, uh, it is it is something that we should all be concerned about, regardless of what party they're they're associated with. Is do you see signs that the other parties are embracing or at least seeing the climate? is going to be an issue as we move forward uh, in this election? I would say in their own ways, yes and no. With the Liberal Party, I think what was a real pain point for a lot of people was they announced a climate change towards the end of their time in the House of Commons, and then the next day they passed the Transmission Pipeline. And a lot mm-hmm. of people had a really hard time with that, right? Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. really felt that there was some doublespeak going on, and they felt that you can't have both. And a similar instance happened when through a green um, initiative that they have, they ended up giving Loblaws $12 million to buy new fridges. Again, that was something people had a really hard time with. And so they do have their policies. You know, they, they said they were committed to the Paris Agreement. We've seen the carbon tax. We've seen some of the work that they're doing there. But there does seem to be this inconsistency. On the flip side, if you look at the NDP, they actually tried to pass a climate change emergency earlier on, and the Liberals didn't join them on that. And they do look at this in a very different way. They also look at it in terms of water rights. They look at it in terms of what's happening with Indigenous communities. So they do tend to look at it in more of maybe a holistic approach than another government might tend to. When we talk about Sheer, and we talk about the Conservatives, obviously the big points we'd look at would be the carbon tax again, and certainly how provincial leaders sometimes seems to have a hold over Sheer. So provincial leaders like Doug Ford, for instance, like Brian Pallister, like Blaine Higgs. But then we also see when it comes to pipelines, you know, Andrew Shear had a horrible, horrible misstep in the last debate when he talked about the pipeline and he talked about Indigenous groups holding other people hostage when it came to pipelines. That was, I think, one of the most telling parts of the debate. And instantly, right, again, somebody like Elizabeth May was right there to hold him to account. Somebody like Jigmeet Singh was right there to hold him on that. But that was a pretty, I think. So, you know, as, as you're speaking, uh, Caroline, and we hear, you know, the challenges and some of the things, the, liberal have, the Liberals have kind of shot themselves in the foot on, 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 on many instances. 
But then you've got, as you pointed out, the Conservatives and the People's Party uh, situation that could be interesting to watch. Um, again, uh, what 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 is stacking up? And I think, you know, do you think that there will be some kind of a split vote at all between NDP and the Greens? Is there some kind of correlation there, do you think? Absolutely. So if we look at the most recent Leger poll, they actually have the Liberals and the Conservatives in a dead tie. Now, I do wonder if the events of today will change that in the next poll. But then they also have the NDP and the Green in a race for the third place as well. So things are just really close across the board. So as you know, Nick Nanos and I had a conversation about polling. And one of the things he and I discussed was that in 2015, people were excited to vote for a leader and they were inspired to vote for a leader. This time, it seems a lot more like people aren't so much inspired to vote for a leader as they are voting against another person. And I think that this could lead to that potential split vote that you're talking about, or it could lead to a minority situation. Now, when you say vote against, that that's something that I hear almost every election, uh, you know, as we go through this. It's, it's always like you're voting against rather than for something or someone. Uh, mm-hmm. So, And that leads me to another question, which is, are, are, do you notice anything from your perspective that that is having parties approach things differently, uh, you know, from, from what you're hearing on the ground up there? Or is it just the same old stuff? I think that's what people are upset about. I think people feel that it's the same old, same old. They felt that they were promised a certain thing in 2015 and that they really didn't get it. And I think especially, um, I'm a young voter myself, and it was the young voting bloc that really gave Trudeau the election last time. It was young voters and it was Indigenous voters. And I think it's that voting bloc especially that probably feels the most hurt by what's happened over the past few years. Young people voted on electoral reform, and very early out the gate, they did not get that. And for Indigenous voters, they were promised many things, and we watched pieces of legislation die in Senate. And I think those people will be thinking twice about how they're voting. And I think, to your point, there is that sense that they were told that the game would be done differently. And to them, it was essentially done the same way it's always been played. Mm. So having said that and pointed out the youth, the indigenous and the young voter and uh, and and the young voter looking and trying to figure out where they want to cast their vote. Uh, what what looms on the horizon for the young voter to to give themselves hope and to some sort of, uh, you know, to say, this is where I want to put my vote for, for change and for something to happen? I think there are quite a few things, because I should certainly say there is always going to be hope. I think some of the things that they're doing right now is they're going to be looking at the policy, they're going to be looking at the platform of some of these leaders and seeing what is it that they're promising, you know, Has the Parliamentary Budget Office actually said this is something that can work? The other thing we're seeing, too, that I think pertains to all of us in a way is kind of looking at this play for an independent vote. So yesterday, Jody Wilson-Raybould had a a rally in her riding of Vancouver Granville, and her entire message was, let's color outside the party lines. And she actually had Elizabeth May who joined her in support. And I think when people have this idea of doing things differently, that's what they think about. They think about a rally where somebody from a different political party came and supported them, and it signals to them that this is somebody who's willing to work across party lines for them. And I think that 
many people have been mobilized. I've heard stories of people coming from Winnipeg out to Markham Stouffville to canvas and campaign with um, Jane Philpott. I've also heard the flip side with people going out to Jody Wilson-Raybould. So I think for those young people who are politically engaged, that's where they're finding their hope. But then I also think for the young people who are maybe newer to politics, they're figuring out what it is that matters to them. So this could be something like the environment. It could be something like Transmission Pipeline. It could be something like Indigenous issues. I think that they're going to be voting based on the things that concern them now, and they're going to see if there is a leader or a party that best speaks to them. Now, it's interesting you, you point out both Jane Philpott and uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould because uh, as independents, uh, I remember hearing, and I'm not sure which one it was, talking exactly about the voice of independence and that in other countries around the world, there is a, a strong independence uh, seats uh, that are sitting within parliaments. And they bring a, a voice that we don't hear here in, in Canada. Absolutely. And in a way, if you think about that, that's a little sad because I think what that voice should be is the voice of the people and the voice of the constituents. But sometimes when we get into these dirty elections or these elections that are so based on leaders as opposed to the people in the country, we lose that voice a little bit. I also think part of the problem Canada has is that the independents tend to be the people who are ousted from the parties, right? Mm. We saw that with Aaron Weir, who was ousted from the NDP. But things, I think, were legitimized a little bit more when people could see Selena Cesar Chavez, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and Jane Philpott sitting together. Now, somebody like Jane Philpott has a very tough race ahead of her. She will be working very hard to get Markham Stovall's vote, whereas I think Jody Wilson-Raybould has more of a shot to get reelected. But these are the people who could have Canada think a little differently about an independent candidate and what that person could do and what sort of policy could be created from somebody who is willing to hear everybody out. You know, um, it's interesting, again, what you just said about the, the independents that have been ousted from parties. And it, and it goes back to the comment you made about voting against something. It's like these independents are, are making a statement about the party they've left and, and doing so. And, it, and it's more like this, uh, it, it's always at odds rather than coming together and, and looking, giving people more, more, as you say, you know, you, you talked about hope, um, and, and I'd like to go back to, to something else uh, about uh, what you had said about uh, pro- what the prom- parties are promising and what the leaders are promising. And, of course, that goes back to, you know, ever about parties promising things. But we all know talk is, it can be cheap. And if you don't follow through on these things, and that's put us where we are today, I think, is, is, is where we, we are starting now to look again to this election. But, you know... The other thing that I'd like to come back to, and it goes to the, the federal-provincial relationships, um, there was something talked about with, with Doug Ford where, you know, he says he's too busy to, camp, you know, too busy to campaign with, with, with Andrew Scheer. Uh, he's, he's too busy governing. Uh, are you hearing anything about any kind of, uh, you know, tension at that level? So it's funny you say that, David, because when I was – in question period earlier this year, it seems like out of the gate that one of the first attacks the Liberals were going to launch against Andrew Scheer was that Andrew Scheer wasn't running the party, Doug Ford's running the party. (laughs) So my thought is that Doug Ford might be toning it back a little bit to allow Andrew Scheer the chance to kind of come into his own as this party leader. Um, 
Doug Ford has a big personality. He operates in a different way than Andrew Scheer does. And he also has a very strong coalition with the other conservative premiers across the country. Mm. But time and time again, I would hear the liberal leaders, not even, or liberal politicians, not really mentioning Scheer so much as they were kind of saying that Scheer's really a puppet for Doug Ford. Mm. If there are tensions, I don't know. Doug Ford has also had a tough go of it, especially with some of the actions of some of his cabinet ministers over time and even things like his carbon tax stickers not sticking. So it could be that he's trying to work things out on a provincial basis. But I do wonder if perhaps some sort of strategy has been to factor Doug Ford out for a little bit to let Andrew Scheer show, especially to a conservative base, that he is a leader. Mm, Interesting. Now, the other thing uh, that you had mentioned about about hope and what came to mind was I I, I heard an interview with someone um, uh, a week or so ago uh, at the international level and and. What they were saying, just in terms of the the world and in terms of the climate and things, uh, they said the person said, "What gives you hope?" and the, and they said, uh, "I don't have no hope. We don't need hope. We need courage." And I thought that was a really interesting statement to make. And it sounds like that's what we need as well. Who are you hearing courage from when you listen to the uh, to the politicians? You know, that's a really great question. Um, I actually. I'm not going to name a politician, but I'm going to name an organization that I think is very courageous. Mm -hmm. I heard of an organization the other day called Future Majority, and their entire purpose is to encourage Canadians between the ages of 18 and 38 to vote. And what I love about them is that they're doing this on their own time. It's grassroots movement, and they're nonpartisan. So they're not trying to force anybody to vote in a different way. They're just trying to encourage people to vote, because I think I get hope when I see people believe in their system and believe that their vote counts. And I think that it's a very courageous thing to kind of, you know, be a young person, maybe not have a ton of resources and try to educate yourself and then go through and educate other people. And I really hope that that courage does have an impact on voters because I think there are many voting blocks that have come to feel that perhaps they don't have a power, they don't have a say, but if they came out in full force and voted, they would change this entire election. Well, that's interesting you mentioned that, because this nonpartisan idea that you just talked about, and as we all know, what's happening is, uh, is, is that on September 27th, that schools uh, are going to be allowing the youth from, from classes to take part in this rally about the environment, and that's going to focus things a little differently. Do you think that will come into play in terms of of some of the debates that are going to be uh, be happening between the leaders. And secondly, along with this, as you probably know, both Stephen Lewis and David Suzuki have uh, uh, are going to be going across the country and talking in this nonpartisan voice about doing something about the climate. And how do you think their voices are going to affect this? You know, I think having a celebrity voice always changes things in a different way. David Suzuki is somebody who has been championing the environment for a long time, and I think that he does add a level of legitimacy to this conversation. I also think, again, when we were talking about courage, this might sound so small, but for some of these students to actually walk out of class when you're being graded on attendance or maybe you're you're missing a test or something, that's an act of courage in and of itself, even though it sounds very tiny, right? We don't all just wake up and decide we're going to run for office. We all need to start somewhere with some small acts. So mm. I think for those students who have been listening and engaging and have decided to take action, I think that's a wonderful example of that courage in and of yourself. 
And there are some people, some really high-profile people, who will be taking part of these strikes. And another person who will actually be making an appearance in Montreal is Greta Thunberg, who is going to be heading over to Montreal a little later to check out one of the global strikes as well. And I think she's also a figure that many young people do look at as this example of courage and as an example of somebody who is trying to make the world more livable. But to your point as well, I also think it will put pressure on the political parties, especially if young people come out in large numbers, because those parties, especially progressive parties, have to meet young people where they are. They can't be expecting young people to go to them. So if this is something that is resonating with young people, it may have some of your party leaders thinking about how they're talking to young people for the rest of this election period. Do you think that will also have an effect on how they view the potential challenge from the Green Party? I mean, this is right up their alley, right? So. Exactly. You know what? I think it could. Um, I don't know what Elizabeth May's plans are, but if Elizabeth May was, say, here in Ottawa or in Toronto speaking with young people, that could be a really great moment for her, right? Again, when you actually hear her speak about these issues, most people will tell you that she does know what she's talking about. It's not just a passion, it's a knowledge. And I think that for a young person who might not know a lot about her or who might kind of be fed up with the political system, if they had the chance to speak with someone like her, that could make a difference. And likewise, you could see that with Jagmeet Singh, you could see that with somebody like some of our other political leaders as well. But I think that that could be a good moment for some of those leaders who maybe haven't been as present or haven't been as seen to get that face time with young people. So if Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada is kind of like this uh, this fly in the ointment, uh, maybe, uh, as, we, as we go forward with this, uh, how, how, what about the NDP? What, what's, what's, what's the NDP got going for them? The NDP is in such an interesting transition time. I think that they've had some really, really strong moments. I think Jagmeet Singh, especially in light of what's happened with the pictures of the Prime Minister, mm. I think he summed it up best when he said, this isn't about our leader. It's about the people in this country who are discriminated for the color of their skin and how they feel when they see that picture. Mm. When he said that, like, that is the statement of a leader, and that is the statement of a leader who is centered on the people of this country. Now, sometimes we don't always hear and see from Jagmeet Singh. I did find that he kind of went underground for a little bit. But when he showed up at that first debate, he was probably at the strongest that we've seen him in a while. And I think when he's on, he really gets it. I always, when I think about him and when he had a really great moment, I always think about the daughters of the vote because I think he was the leader who connected with them in a way that the other leaders just simply couldn't. Mm. And so I think that, again, when you talk about especially that engagement with young people, if he's out in present and if he's really on fire that day, I think that will happen. The other thing that the NDP have going to, though, is they have some very strong players there. Somebody like Charlie Angus, right? Mm. A, super strong, a super strong player. Nikki Ashton. So you do have those players who I think also kind of make the party more of a team. And I think with the group of them, with the people who are progressive and who do care about those issues, I think that they will feel confident knowing that even if this is something that's newer to Jagmeet Singh, he does have the support from people who have been in the House of Commons a little bit longer. Mm. Okay. Caroline, let's make sure we get uh, back together and speak very soon. And what I mean by that is maybe within the next week, because I think there's going to be some, some, some interesting things to talk about uh, about uh, in in politics and this election, especially with, uh, as we mentioned, this this uh, this uh, march that's going to be happening uh, and statement about the climate and how that's going to affect things. 
and who knows what else might happen between then and now, especially uh, with the the uh, the issues around what uh, has happened with Trudeau. Uh, so, so what do you think? Are are you game? I am down. I'd be more than happy to come back. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Caroline. We appreciate you uh, being our eyes and ears up there in Ottawa, and we look forward to talking with you again very soon.